All right, hello folks. It's uh, Allison McDowell from uh, the McDowell uh, Kitchen today. And um, I've been working on sort of a presentation in response to an interview slash article that was forwarded to me. Uh, and, and I thank you for that, the person who sent it along, because it was interesting. Um, it actually, it is this, it's an interview that Matthew Arrett, um, who's an independent journalist and I think affiliated with uh, Unlimited Hangout, among other publications, um, that he hosted with uh, a gentleman named Fox Green, who evidently lives in Kingston, New York. And they are both sort of strong advocates for uh, nuclear energy. And so uh, Fox Green had written um, an article for that was shared on his website called Space, the website is called Space Commune, uh, on RFK Jr.'s destructive environmental record. And of course, that's, um, you know, for people who are looking at a critique of RFK Jr., that's pretty low-hanging fruit is the whole, like, how does the archetypal environmental warrior RFK Jr., um, and as I understand it, sort of a corporate environmental warrior, um, mesh with the health freedom uh, R.F. Kennedy Jr. And so bringing those two together, and um, as I listened to the interview that went along with it, which was about an hour long, um, it seemed clear that the, the intention wasn't so much to um, do sort of a, a sharp critique of the candidacy, more like they wanted to introduce some concerns and then pitch um, make a strong pitch for adoption of nuclear energy. And it was in the context of uh, Mr. Uh, Green. Uh, he was, uh, uh, he had lived uh, near the Indian Point nuclear plant that was closed down uh, with participation from river keepers. Um, so, so that is the overall framework. And um, I just want to sort of give my uh, sort of in introductory comments. Um, the reason I wanted to really talk about this, it, it, because again, it turns out that this interview was less really about RFK Jr. than more making a case for adoption of next-gen nuclear technology. And, you know, I'll get into this a bit later, but, um, you know, a bit over a year ago, uh, Lynn, Jason, and Drew and I attended the uh, Mormon Transhumanist Conference uh, in Provo, uh, largely because they were talking about blockchain and decentralization. And we were really curious, especially since they had a pretty high profile, one of their keynote speakers, his name is Tamika Tilleman, and it was someone who I had been following very closely uh, because he had been a fellow at New America uh, Foundation and helped develop the social impact finance space and digital identity for them. So I thought, wow, um, Tamika Tillman is going to the Mormon Transhumanist Conference. That's, I guess, everything is just coming out into the open now. And it was really important that we went because it was a packed day. It was like from eight to five with new presenters, maybe every 45 minutes. And it really touched on many, many topics that are sort of going to be uh, unfolding. Um, again, not in Davos, but in Provo, Utah, <laughs> and how they affect the world at large. And one of the speakers was actually a professor from uh, Brigham Young University. And um, he was talking about molten uh, salt reactors and doing sort of modular nuclear. So uh, whenever someone brings up next-gen nuclear, I put it in the context of like, oh, yeah, that's where I learned about it. It was at the Mormon Transhumanist Conference and sort of fitting that into the, the narrative because uh, these two gentlemen, Eret and Fox, uh, they say that they're very against the Great Reset and transhumanism. Um, so they're situating it in a different story, but the, the, the door I came in on, my exposure to it was definitely within a blockchain transhumanist framework. So I think it's interesting. Um, 
So uh, just in, in the article itself, uh, Mr. Green's article, it was like anti-imperialist or green imperialist. And again, throughout, I really haven't found much on e either individual that really speaks to um, impact finance. Uh, there, there's a lot maybe about the green agenda, the worshiping Gaia, um, Klaus Schwab, you know, somewhat decarbonization, but not really even hitting on the carbon markets too hard, but really framing green, the green thing within a, um, you know, a fascist uh, Gaia worshiping framework connected to the, the banking class and the and a predatory parasitic elite, but without taking it to the next step of looking at uh, impact finance and specifically like the UN Sustainable Development Goals, which those goals are much beyond energy. They're um, they're inclusive of pretty much every aspect of being on cybernetics. And, um, you know, one of the things I, you know, I was interested in is that in um, uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Eret, who was the host of the interview, um, again, he uh, has written for a lot of different outlets. He's based in Canada. He has a website, I think, Canadian Patriot, Patriot and yeah, Canadian Patriot Review and the Rising Tide Foundation. And so he's he and I think his wife, actually, they both Cynthia Chung, I think is her name. Um, they both do pretty intensive historical research. Um, and it was interesting because when I was listening to the interview, um, he really touches on in, in his other speaking engagements a lot of things that I've touched on as well. So he he goes into the Fabian Society. He goes into eugenics. Um, he goes into cybernetics and the Macy conferences. And so as I sort of sat with this for the last couple days, I think it's really interesting how um, people can take a palette of the same historical information and shape it um, to tell different stories. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, you should totally believe my story and oppose his story or vice versa. Um, I think that just to sort of complexify, you know, what is reality and how do we tell the stories we tell with the materials that are out there, um, I think it's a useful, it, for me, I felt like it's going to be a useful um, examination um, of that. And so, again, I, I very much appreciate um, his historical research. Um, you know, I when I was looking into uh, Mr. Fox Green, uh, you know, it's it's very interesting how within, you know, the the social media archetypal spaces, how people their their identities evolve. Uh, this is Green right here. When I when I looked into him, he like going into the lockdowns was definitely sort of a um, a more of a left leaning activist i think he was involved in the like in a creative uh, marketing uh, advertising firm in kingston and active in uh, housing issues issues of affordable housing and rent control and eviction issues which are also issues that i'm um, interested in and, and, and there was a certain amount of resonance that i had in looking at sort of his journey because it turns out um later on I'll, we'll talk about this but his town was actually it used to be a, a hub for ibm and uh, then later it ended up getting bought out by Peter Buffett, Warren Buffett's son, who is a social entrepreneur and uh, involved in a lot of, you know, questionable philanthropic uh, giving and controlling of communities. And so Fox Green had actually done a really nice um, uh, documentary about an hour long looking into the nonprofit industrial complex, which is something that Jason has been interested in for a long time and myself as well. Um, 
But again, he didn't take it to the point of actually understanding social impact finance and data analytics and linking that into the cybernetic system. Um, he just became sort of disenchanted with this idea because honestly, a lot of the left has been sort of woven into this philanthro capitalist construct and um, essentially has sort of pivoted into being, I guess, a a Trump supporter or, you know, in, in one of his tweets, he's like, Trump better win, you know, and this is the next time out that it's going to be Biden, Trump and Trump better win. So it's interesting to see someone who previously identified as like founding a D DSA, Democratic Socialists of America chapter, pivot into like the populism. But, you know, it happens. It happens. So it's just it was interesting for me to sort of look around into the these two gentlemen and their stories and see how how they were working on stuff. So um, again, in in the overall uh, in overview, I took a few notes. Uh, Essentially, they sort of lean into a little bit. I have a lot of clips, the dark green dots here are clips. I'm going to play those. But um, they sort of lean into the fact that uh, RFK Jr.'s environmental activism, so to speak, um, as river keepers and with uh, Natural Resources Defense Council was sort of anti-business, that they were that those firms, those green firms are about closing up businesses and therefore they're Malthusian. And I, I think it's quite interesting because neither neither of them brought up that RFK Jr. was a managing partner for Vantage Point Capital uh, that was investing in all sorts of emerging technologies, both health tech, uh, clean tech, energy. So he's not, RFK Jr. is not anti-business. Um, he's supporting the businesses that he's aligned with, which are is the entire new you know technology of sustainability, right? That's an entirely new technological program. So um, it was interesting to me that the two of them were situating this from within like a protecting business standpoint, um, because Mr. Eret is very much aligned with um, promoting the the Belt and Road Initiative and aligning uh, uh, with Russia and with China and moving towards a multipolar world. And yet again, it, it was leading with the business interest, which later on, I'll, I, I'll, I'll look at, into this a little bit, but he, his, Eric says that he was influenced greatly by uh, uh, LaRouche. Um, and then also a, a gentleman that was connected with his uh, foundation, uh, Edward Lazansky, uh, who was a, a Russian physicist who emigrated and aligned uh, with essentially libertarian and conservative interests when with the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, so definitely it, it's in alignment with uh, Russia and China, but from a business forward standpoint, which is an interesting position to take. So um, definitely promoting this next gen nuclear. I'm just sort of going through the notes here. Uh, Really digging in, there's a section that they talk about Sri Lanka and the economic crisis in Sri Lanka, and they're sort of pinning it on a food crisis linked to a shift to organic agricultural practice. Um, and in this, it's very sort of weird threading the needle with the Rockefeller Foundation that like, yeah, they're bad, but maybe they were good because they did the first green green revolution with all of the petrochemical fertilizers. Um, definitely kind of selling the, the fertilizer industry, which is, which is interesting because... Uh, a lot of that is Syngenta is one of the big players in that space uh, bought five years ago by Chem China. So um, yeah, pro this idea of Green Revolution 2.0, but without actually calling it agritech or talking about the implications of, you know, the internet of everything and blockchain and nanotechnology in the agricultural space and, and you know, promoting technological development, but not actually saying what that is. And then, you know, if you're going with technological development in, in agriculture, that is the great reset. Like, 
the, the Green Revolution 2.0 is the agricultural reset. So it's it's kind of hard for them to position themselves as against the Great Reset. Um, they're sort of against it as a parody with Klaus Schwab. I mean, they don't say that it's a parody, but they've bought into the parody narrative. And then they're not looking to all of the other ways that this transformation into Web3 extended reality is the Great Reset and it affects all the all sectors, um, including agriculture. I mean, very centrally agriculture because that's you know one of the core, you know, access to food is one of the core ways that you control populations. Um, so they they talk a lot about eugenics and Malthusianism and Mal for those who are not familiar, um, I think it's Thomas Malthus. Uh, you know, his frame was that we would hit a certain population growth uh, on the earth beyond the carrying capacity and then, you know, calamity would happen. So it was definitely the Malthusian aspect is within like population control and they were framing it definitely as a depopulation agenda. So that's that's something here often to, for people who are in the sphere of really just mostly listening to World Economic Forum narratives and people who are centering those narratives is the depopulation agenda. Um, now I, I have a different take on what's actually happening. Um, then they mentioned they sort of implicate RFK Jr. because he is good friends with uh, Vedana Shiva and her uh, inf uh, participation in um, Sri Lanka around the shift return to organic farming practices that that was causing a, a cause of the economic unrest. Um, and there, it's all about nuclear, but it's not so much about looking at the energy players uh, broadly um, in the rollout of the cybernetic system and then understanding energy economics and that a lot of the big oil, the fracking players, um, including uh, Maurice, Morris Strong, um, who I know Eric is familiar with because he's written about him in some of his other books, um, not really bringing in the role of the big oil interests in um, and in you know, right now we don't have big nuclear interests because it's so highly regulated and that hasn't happened, but there are many, many billionaires banking on the development of next-gen nuclear. So, you know, give it 100 years and we'll have the big nuclear interests. Um, but not really looking at the role of energy futures trading uh, and the control of energy and energy prices as part of this larger game. And I, I think on to a certain extent, um, the discussion that they have about the closure of this Indian Point nuclear plant that the Riverkeepers were involved in resulted in much higher energy prices for working class people uh, in the Hudson Valley in the greater New York area, um, like very, very high uh, prices for electric and um, and it, which was a huge economic issue. So I'm not saying that it's not an economic issue, but I think in some ways what strikes me is that they're closing these nuclear plants, which are pretty much aging out really. And under cover of saying that that they're going to have wind and solar um, replace, which, you know, they make a good point that that's probably not a viable replacement. And then I think that there will be some catastrophe point. And again, there's a lot of pressure on, you know, the energy markets with the, the war between Russia and Ukraine um, and the Nord Stream and all of that. So that the pressure on energy, uh, that they'll be forced into the next gen nuclear and then they'll have a good excuse to do it and to sort of overcome the barriers that have already existed. Uh, so this is... Uh, as I see it, as the closure of the big plants is essentially setting up the justification that will come within the next uh, 10 or 20 years or so to roll out the next phase of nuclear that will enable a decentralized energy grid on blockchain, which is their goal, which is their goal for 
the cybernetic ant computer. Um, so again, you know, I, I just laid out some, these are things to keep in mind uh, as I sort of work my way through this diagram and the resources. Um, there are contrasting narratives, right? And so we all, you know, I'm not saying that mine is right and his is wrong. I'm just saying like, let's compare. Um, the the Eret Green framing is that there is a parasitic elite that is preying on everyone. Um, the frame that I'm putting forth is that what is planning on coming is a decentralized autonomous organization, blockchain governments, governance of the commons. So they're going to tell a story that is centering the commons uh, and uh, radical participation on blockchain, but it's still going to land us in the cybernetic land. Um, and so it may ultimately at the very top be managed by the Bank for International Settlements and their ultimate ledger, and you can tie it back to the, the, the predatory elite. But I think if we just stick to this is a, a parasitic elite class preying on the poor, we're going to miss the much larger picture, which is, you know, a lot of um, people just going about their jobs doing technology um, and they're actually building the open air uh prison slash ant computer, right? That it, they're, they're, the people who are actually putting the next phase in place are may not even be aware of what the situation it is. And so may, they may be pawns of a parasitic elite, but I don't think foregrounding the parasitic elite, it, it helps to obscure all of the other parts of the game that are going on. Uh, Eret and Green frame things as sort of the Davos villains. And again, I... You know, for the first year, I, I spent probably more time than I should have focusing on the World Economic Forum. I've realized as I understand the game of narrative, um, what it, cognitive domain management or whatever, that um, probably most of the stuff coming out of Davos is meant for the public, um, the awoke, quote unquote, public to gnaw on and to uh, create a lot of outrage and emotion around. And it's not that there's nothing of worthwhile there, but I think that they're not telling the whole story. It's very carefully curated. And so people that spend most of their time focused on that are missing a lot of other stuff going on in the background and then getting themselves, uh, throwing themselves into the outrage machine, which uh, again is helpful to the system because they, that's, they want to keep people in the peripheral way of thinking and in the emotion-centered consuming phase rather than the thoughtful uh, investigation phase. Um, so... Uh, so again, my frame is that that we are on a trajectory of technological progress that is at least since the, the Enlightenment era and that most of the people who are involved in this just uh, very slow, decentralized, compartmentalized system that's advancing us towards dematerialization don't know it, right? And so the Davos civilians um, if we can put everything out there and make that the focus, then we're not actually looking in our own community, what's going on at the university in our town, what's going on with our city government contracts, uh, what, what are the venture capitalists where we live, um, how is this all involved? Um, by focusing it outward, we're not looking where we're, we're standing and realizing that, oh, wow, like actually the United States has been in on building this all along and and in every, you know, most all of the major countries. There aren't any countries, I would argue, that are outside of, of this template. And so it's a very slow boil that many, many people have been involved with. And um, yeah, so that's a very different story than there are villains at Davos and we're going to get them. Um, their framing is around a fascist Gaia worship 
thing. I mean, that they sort of throw that off numerous times, like, oh, um, we're not going to sacrifice ourselves on the altar of Gaia worship. We're not going to, uh, you know, starve ourselves or kill our industry uh, on on the altar of, of this nature worship. Um, again, they don't really focus at all on the sustainable development goals as a, a global investment channel, right? Um, very few of the pe people out there are talking about the impact investment and the ESG isn't China. It's actually uh, a system towards cybernetics and eventually shifting towards tokenizing all resources on the earth, both natural and human capital, all of that. Um, you know, and again, Eric should be familiar with that because he's, you know, he's aligned with with Whitney Webb and she's written about the natural capital. Um, but Again, if you if you frame it as fascist Gaia worship, like somehow connected to Hitler, and it's it's very emotionally triggering. It's a very strong image, um, but it actually isn't is woefully incomplete and doesn't actually build in uh, th the fact that the next phase of tokenization with Web three will be. Um, sort of bringing together uh, the the capitalist and the planned economy, socialist, communist together into this token economics of, of Web3. Um, so again, there's a lot more to talk about, but if you, if you create a very strong image that's triggering for people, and again, this idea of fascist Gaia worship is sort of implying that there's no problems with the environment. And, and I myself would identify as someone who very much cares for the environment. I think that many things are out of whack with what's happening. I'm not in line with the standard uh, climate science narrative. Um, and I'm not a supporter of, I don't believe that the sustainable development goals are going to offer any sort of meaningful solution. It's just a way to create new revenue streams for the debt finance industry and the militarized technologies that are going to track all of us and our exchanges socially and with nature as uh, digital commodities. So, uh, you know, I, I know that it's wrong, but at the same time, if if what you if the framing is that, then you're essentially just saying that there's no problem with the environment, which I would disagree. I, I'm very much more in alignment with the idea of, you know, an indigenous worldview of right relationships, right? That we are our siblings sharing the planet and we need to find a way to do that in a respectful way. Um, so that's another story that can be told that's not just um, Gaia worship. Um, and again, so my focus is on impact finance and the token engineering. Uh, you know, they, they didn't say a lot about decarbonization, but again, they sort of imply it in the green energy space. Um, there it really isn't any incorporation around Web3 and human capital and natural capital development. So. What I heard in their interview was very much centering um, technological development and industrial development um, and things like steel mills. But I think we have to come to terms with the fact that the industries that will be profitable coming are those that are aligned with creating extended reality, creating a new digital empire. This idea, I mean, Sure, there'll, I mean, I don't know about steel mills. I mean, the, the new empire is gonna be built on optics and photonics, so it's more like semiconductors and optical materials plants and nanotechnology plants, which is something that, again, um, you know, Russia and China are very involved in all of these uh, like high-level developments. So on the one hand, if you're saying you're against the Great Reset, but you're supporting all of the industrial technology developments and you're not really saying, well, wow, 
the Great Reset is actually like the industrial developments are going to build this next digital empire. So what are the technologies that aren't building that? Um, I don't find that nuance in the conversation. Uh, so they talk about Malthusian eugenics. So definitely the, the depopulation framing, like uh, limits to growth, uh, population control, depopulation. And my take is really, if you're, if we can't advance this idea from cybernetics to token engineering to collective emergence in human computation, social computation, I think we're missing a big part of the puzzle. And, you know, I'd love to hear more people talking about that because I think that it is the token-based coordination of a world population, a world intellect and creativity that is something that they're after, uh, including maybe even at an extrasensory or psychic level, like trying to enhance that part of uh, human development, both individually and collectively. So this idea of depopulation and population control is, is counter to the idea of individuals uh, controlled controlled individuals um, and, and preferably people who agree to be controlled and like being controlled um, to be part of an, an engineering mechanism, right? So if if it's all about depopulation, then they're essentially, the, the system is uh, eroding away the material that it would use for its computational substrate. Uh, I think, you know, there's a couple comments in the beginning about the threat of nuclear war uh, and again, positioning, they're, they're, they're Eret is definitely pushing towards, you know, you know, again, we should have the world join in the Belt and Road Initiative and create this multipolar world, uh, you know, the West and the BRICS nations and everyone come together as a happy family. And, you know, I'm, I'm not against the people of Russia or the people of China or, you know, the people of Ukraine. I'm not against any group of people. Um, and I would always have considered myself very much pro-peace in the past. Um, and I'm not pro-war for sure, um, but I understand that this piece over time is really, if you understand it within the context of systems engineering and homeostasis, I think that that's what they're after. Um, so I, I'm, I'm a little concerned at this idea of um, moving into a piece where we don't actually understand what they mean by peace. Like, I don't think the word means what you think it means. Um, and so again, the, the, the framing of imminent nuclear war is uh, very much a, a stick to push people in a certain direction. And I've come to believe that looking back over like other aspects of the Cold War era, like the Pugwash conferences, uh, that maybe it, it wasn't what we thought and that maybe those most of those weapons were never meant to be used in the way that we thought they were going to be used to destroy things and that actually maybe the next phase the next quote unquote war is a war on consciousness and a, a war that's ways waged with radioisotope you know in, in different sort of technologies for, towards a radio eugenics program uh, so I, I don't really buy into the the uh we're on the verge of armageddon nuclear armageddon um which is uh, a bit of how they present themselves in in the talk not not overtly but a couple of the comments um i am much more interested in understanding the nuclear uh framework within biophysics the history of biophysics that came out of world war ii uh, radioisotopes and the weaponization of space and how this all connects to track and trace technology and energy uh, economics and metabolism tracking because i think if you can meld the energy economics and the metabolism with the technocracy and then throw in a decentralized autonomous organization on blockchain, that that's getting us a lot closer to what, what's actually going on. Um, 
there the Eret and Fox's focus is uh, really on cheap energy and and saying that nuclear is what's going to do that. And I'm interested in talking about what would it mean to live in a a, a, a world of decentralized smart villages connected by blockchain grids run on uh, nuclear power. Because I, I think that that feels like where we're, where we're headed. And is that the kind of future that we would want is to be uh, have the energy usage in our community somehow be linked to digital nudges uh, and cybernetics and programmable money to, um, to nudge us into behaviors and particip like participating in this computational design. Now, of course, they would say, I, I think if I said it, offered that to them, they would say, oh, no, because that sounds like the Great Reset and we wouldn't do that. We're all about sovereignty, national sovereignty, other things. Um, but the fact that for the most part, they, they, I mean, they're not talking about it. Most of these other influencers aren't talking about it. Um, if you're not actually spending the time to familiarize yourselves with token economics and cybernetics and the decentralized energy grid, uh, then then you're just letting them run the show. <laughs> That's my opinion. So um Again, the, uh, talking about Belt and Road World Peace uh, and industrial development, uh, that they want to promote growth as opposed to Malthusian um, population degrowth. Uh, but my question is, you know, I was reading yesterday about um, Oliver Reiser's Cosmic Humanism and from 1961, but a lot of the work was done in the late 30s and 40s. And this idea of bringing the East and West together, uh, Western consciousness and Eastern consciousness and uniting them uh, and towards this idea of a world brain, which is something that uh, has come up with Talhar Desjardins, the idea of the nosphere, and also Vladimir Vernadsky, which is or Vernadsky, uh, which is someone that Eret uh, references often um, and seems to be very influenced by. And Vernadsky was very involved in the early development of uh, uh, radio geochemistry. Uh, he was a biogeochemist and interested in the biosphere and the integration of everything, uh, all living systems on the earth. Um, and Vernadsky's frame was anti-entropic, which in, in this I agree with, with Matthew Eret on about the anti-entropy. I'm not sure exactly how we get there, but I don't, I think that the cyberneticists want us to believe that we live in a closed system. And as long as we believe we live in a closed system, that they can control the levers. And I'm in agreement with him that I don't think that the system, I would prefer to believe that the system isn't controlled and that we have agency and there's other things out there that we don't yet under fully understand about the universe that gives us open potentiality. Um, but Vernadsky, uh, in his idea that was counter Malthusianism, was that um, essentially when the world, the population got to a certain point, that it was maybe risking a tipping point of controlling resources, that people would have developed uh, the intellectual capacity to create new technologies that would uh, enable the advance, the leap beyond the limit. And I think that's what Eret sort of imagines that the nuclear power, maybe next-gen nuclear power, is that, and that that would be in alignment with Vernadsky. But again, I'm not so sure that my anti-entropy stance would align with a world brain noosphere framework, because to me that feels dematerialized, and I feel like we're on this earth in a material body for a purpose, and I don't think that that's all there is to begin beginning and end, but I think we're here for a reason. And, and if the creator put us here in a body, it was for a, a purpose, not an accident. Um, so anyway, so those are the, the frameworks, the differences I see uh, in how they present their critique of RFK Jr. and their pitch 
for uh, nuclear power and then also uh, the Green Revolution 2.0 um, and, and my position, which is asking people to consider uh, token economics and impact finance and Web3 and the role that a decentralized energy grid using next-gen modular nuclear is going to play in that. So again, Eric, he, he does speak a lot to somehow China and Russia being the models that the West should aspire to. Um, and the implication is somewhat that they're outside of the green uh, program and that they're pursuing development through the Belt and Road and um, that they're outside of all of the stuff that we're dealing with, whatever the fascist Gaia uh, setup. I would say, you know, when I was doing my research, and once you understand that it's not just about energy or carbon trading, it's about human capital. I knew very early on, um, before the lockdown started, that Jim Heckman of the University of Chicago was doing a lot of work around human capital development in China, uh, focused on the youth uh, education in China of young children in particular, and bringing them on board for this next uh, technological era. Uh, so, and, and of course, if you look at the ed tech space and Michael Crow, so much fluidity between um, the, 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 the West and China, um, with Arizona State University. Again, we have Stephen Schwartzman and the Schwartzman Scholars. Nicholas Bergruen has set up shop there. Like most of the major technological interests are you know, have one foot in the West and one foot in China. So I don't think that you can, it's it's helpful to really um, put them all in one box, like this group is this and this group is that, because I think it's a lot more murky and fluid and there's a lot of uh, transition. And, you know, China has a lot of people. And so once you understand uh, that there are going to be investments and profits to be made in quote unquote improving human capital. Of course, the West is going to look for their way into China to improve that human capital to build out extended reality. So I think a lot of the tension between the nation states that that is plays out on uh, in the media landscape is manufactured for the purposes of maintaining polarity. But behind the scenes, many of the people at the top layers, they understand that the program of the world brain is a world brain. It's not a world brain minus uh, the belt, the BRICS nations. It is a world brain. And so, of course, once you understand the Hegelian dialectic is that you you create, you know, the thesis, antithesis, synthesis. So you're, you're going to have the two polarities and then you're going to bring them together, you know. And so I don't know, is this belt and road pitch from Mr. Eret um, part of the, the unification into the world brain um, to, to complete Vernadsky's uh, ideal? I don't know. Like, is that his pitch outside of the, the great reset is the great unification? <laughs> um, you know, it, it seems like that's a possibility to me. I don't know. Um, that's just from what I see when I'm looking at it. But, you know, here is the, the UN uh, artwork on the sustainable development goals in China. So, you know, it's not like the UN isn't active in China. Like you could maybe uh, dispute how active or maybe this is, you know, who's actually in charge over there. But to think that they're, that this isn't part of the program, I think is disingenuous. Um, this is one of the maps that I made a while back about uh, uh, education summit in Beijing, again, with Arizona State, a lot of the, the video game companies, Tencent, uh, uh, Tal Education, uh, this IO2 Foundation based out of Hong Kong, working on digital identity. Uh, and then ultimately, they were doing early pilots, the IEEE uh, in Guangdong province in Foshan on uh, tracking people on parole on blockchain. And so I know a lot of these folks just want to talk about crypto and they don't want to talk about blockchain. But you know, 
at the time that I made this map, which is in December 2019, I was I was one of the people who would say stuff like, oh, the Chinese social credit score, right? And then I realized like, oh, no, 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 that came out of Stanford. Yes, they're using it in China. It's a test bed over there because they culturally they can get away with a lot more than they could in the West. Uh, but it's the, the this idea of the social credit score isn't a Chinese construct. Um, but to, to say that somehow China has like a wall up and it isn't totally interfaced with Western venture capital um, is inaccurate. So especially when it comes to the education space, which is a sustainable development goal so that UN SDGs are not just energy related. And then here we have the SDGs uh, in the Russian Federation, uh, you know, from 2020, you know, talking about defining the goals for the SDGs in, in Russia, uh, 100 SDG targets directly or indirectly. Again, you, you could say, oh, well, that's just there and they're not really doing it. Um, but I don't think that you're, you can say that it's not happening at all. Uh, the other thing is, so my, my personal introduction to some of this stuff, I didn't really, I haven't done a lot of deep research into Russia, but my introduction when I, back in like 2016, I didn't even know what transhumanism was. And I found, I was, I found a talk with this guy, Pavel Leksha. Um, he's over here on the left. Uh, he's the founder of Global Education Futures. And uh, Leksha was, uh, he, he was connected to uh, Skolkovo, which is sort of like the, the MIT, it's the business school, the MIT, maybe MIT Sloan in Russia. And so he founded this future of education, which is totally transhumanist and tied to skills building. Now, I think he's operating out of the Netherlands, but uh, he, he has a lot of ties to, uh, to Russia. He's, he's quite uh, a player. Here, here his, is his LinkedIn. Uh, the founder of Global Education Futures, uh, Living Cities Earth, and Rapid Foresight Methodology. So uh, again, now based out of Utrecht in the Netherlands. Uh, but, but deeply connected. Again, it's fluid. It's much more fluid. There's not just like one nation state, right? And there's, there's these boundaries. These major players that are operating in the top are cross-border. And so uh, Leksha, who is a transhumanist, was a member of the expert council the Russian Agency for Strategic Initiatives uh, for 10 years between December of 2011 and March of 2022. Uh, a founding member of the expert council of the agency that sought to broker relations between the government, business, and civic society. Uh, supported 200 plus projects of systemic innovation in professional and lifelong education and training based on the Global Education Futures vision. Led the Russian foresight movement uh, and a globally unique foresight fleet uh, one of the largest future awareness labs in the world, um, co-founded the Boiling Point Network of 140 co-working spaces for future co-creation. And uh, so he says he stepped down because of the Russia-Ukraine situation. But before that, uh, same time frame, he was a professor of practice at the Moscow School of Management in Skolkovo. Uh, developed and led a number of award-winning corporate and industry-focused executive education programs, working in the education development sector, uh, the future of education. And we need to understand that what this is, is the future of learning, the learning, the tokenized learning economy is building AI, is getting the impact data to train, to get the machine learning sets to train essentially the robots, right? The Sophia, the robot, the Hanson Robotics, um, using our creativity uh, in tandem with, ro you know, humanoid robots or AI, uh, you know, whether the AI is using us as a prosthetic or we're using the AI as a prosthetic, like 
there is this weird relationship being built. And this is the technology. So I think when they when they speak at the beginning about um, RFK Jr. being anti-business because he shut down this nuclear plant, I think that's an oversimplified thing. The new range of business is the kind of business that RFK Jr. and Vantage Point have been investing in for a very long time. And it's the stuff that the, the foresight uh, influencers like Mr. Uh, Leksha, uh, they've known for a long time because they've been setting the game plan again for the last, um, well, at least 10 years. I'm sure it goes back much earlier than that. Um, so what kind of, if you're advancing, and I don't have the answer to this either. Like I know that we need some economic growth, but ultimately it seems to me that the economic growth, most of what's being proposed is to, uh, turn us into digital commodities and avatars in a game. And I, I disagree with that fundamentally. So then what what other, how can we build other economic constructs that don't require that? Uh, but to say that that Russia isn't involved in any of this reset stuff is, is or the transhumanist is, is factually incorrect. Um, and I will say Pavel Leksha had a close relationship with MIT. Um, unfortunately, I think the talk he gave at MIT isn't available, uh, but this is a slide deck that he had, and I, I show it quite regularly, but uh, trans Neural Web Roadmap Enacting Our Transhumanist Future uh, from 2014, Pavel Luksha at Skolkovo School of Business. Um, so I think it's really important, especially if we're considering, um, you know, this idea of the ant computer uh, and evolving humans to some sort of next level of cognitive enhanced function or potentially psychic function, uh, extrasensory functions, uh, whether that's through brain computer interfaces or some sort of other nanotechnologies or frequencies, um, that this is something that Russia and the Soviet Union had been involved with for a very long time. I mean, they were they were much farther along, I think, than we were during the Cold War in terms of the psychic, like looking into paranormal and psychic phenomenon and psychic warfare. And and I know that that militarily in the U.S. that was a concern. So, if that's that the the trajectory and similar trajectory to what Talhar de Jordan and Oliver Reiser and Vladimir Vernadsky are saying that we, we're forming some sort of global thought consciousness program, um, then of course Russia would be involved in it, right? They're, they wouldn't not be involved. So, okay, so there's Pavel. And uh, this is a UNESCO. And, and again, Eret speaks often of UNESCO and Huxley. Um, and so there was a virtual language, uh, a Russian language roundtable on digital technology and the future of education. And this is in 2020, September of 2020, uh, sponsored by UNESCO. Um, and so one of the, the people connected to that was uh, Pavel Leksha, uh, says at the time, Moscow School of Management. So it's not like UNESCO isn't involved in, in Russia as well. Um, and, and in, in many respects, I think if you, if you look at Global Education Futures Forum as the template, they, they may be in the lead um, on this. So in terms of the foresight futures, but if you frame transhumanism simply as, I mean, I don't exactly understand how they understand transhumanism. Is it, it's just um, brain computer interfaces or nanotechnology or whatever, but this um, bio hybrid extended reality system is what's being baked into education. And that is a sustainable development goal. The management of consciousness and the management of biological function are sustainable development goals three and four. And so if we limit our conversation to carbon uh, and energy systems, we're, we're not gonna get there. Uh, so, okay, so this is, that's sort of the introduction. 
Now, let me see. So I have dots around here. Um, so I'm gonna play this first clip. It's interesting to me that, again, if you, if you see how it's uh, framed here, this is Fox Green's article, anti-imperialist or green imperialist. And they're trying to sort of give him some room to be a peace candidate, right? And again, I would say peace has a lot more layers than we understand. If you if you look back to Laszlo and homeostasis and biophysics, uh, peace is is maybe not exactly as we understand it. Um, but they, they're they're working to frame him as an anti-imperialist, or at least give him credit for that. And and uh, in so in his okay, so this is this is from the article. Uh, it says one priority on his website is peace. And then they pull some quotes from the peace part of his website. Um, this is the type of policy a real American leader should be putting forth. And rightfully, Kennedy is gaining a lot of popular support fast. Despite this, I'm still very, very scared about what a Robert F. Kennedy Jr. presidency would look like. He has never held office, but his influence is undeniable. His actions, advocacy, and rhetoric and their outcomes deserve a second look. So the article opens with this sort of hat tip to like, wow, we really love your position on peace as an anti-imperialist. And then this is Kennedy's, uh, the his website here, peace, bring it home. Now, again, I'm not anti-peace. I, I, I'd like to have a more nuanced conversation about what people mean by peace. Um, this idea that it says, a. Uh, that he's quoting his, no, I guess this is his quote. America cannot be an empire abroad and continue to be a democracy at home. Um, again, with the tokenization of voting and e-government, I think this idea of democracy, we need to have some deeper conversations about what democracy really means too in, in terms of tokenized uh, digital twin participation. But, uh, you know, it's talking about making America strong by pulling off the, the military technology. Um, and I agree with that. I think we spend entirely too much money on weapon systems. I I would sort of align with the idea of an anti-imperialist mindset. I'm, I, 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 that, I'm pretty comfortable with that. But I would also say that we're not fully understanding what the weapons look like. And the next phase of the war is a war on consciousness, I think, and a war on natural life and a war on spirituality and intuitive thinking and our own understanding. And um, so, a, a, and I think America wants to imagine that we don't use weapons on our own people, which, you know, anyone who's paid attention to move or Standing Rock or uh, Wounded Knee or you know other things they they know you know Kent State we use weapons on our own people and that will be the case with the consciousness stuff and so if we just imagine the weapons being uh, missiles and tanks or uh, cyber warfare maybe I think we'll we'll be missing the the behavioral psychology part um, and I think that the behavioral psychology war on consciousness will continue no matter what this idea that we're going to bring it home. Um, you know, it would be interesting to know, so the, the, the defense interests that really suck up so much of our budget, um, you know, it would be interesting to know how he sees uh, redirecting those resources, um, because I wouldn't be against that. But again, the, the peace idea, I think, is more nuanced, um, and we have to understand war in a bigger way, that war is also on consciousness. And if you're making America strong again, um, okay, when a body is sick, it withdraws its energy from the extremities to nourish the vital organs. 
It's time to end the Imperial project and attend to all that has been neglected. Crumbling cities, antiquated railways, failing water systems, decaying infrastructure, the ailing economy. Um, well, that sounds a little bit like Build Back Better, just to say, like, is is that, um, are we re, are we working on those? And are, is that inclusive of the internet of bio nano things, right? That That's what I would be really interested in, in hearing more about, because that doesn't really seem so different than the investments that we're talking about. And it doesn't say that they're not going to be smart uh, technologies. So um, if we wage peace at home using uh, investments in smart infrastructure, I wouldn't be on board for that. I definitely would not be on board. And I think we need to understand the idea of empire as extended reality. Really important. Uh, and then, okay, so the, so let me just, I'll, I'll run this clip about the, uh, this is sort of their hopeful introduction. With a picture of uh, Indian Point nuclear, the Indian Point nuclear reactor behind him um, in your in your feature image, um, yep. <clears throat> and I think we all have a certain amount of hope that uh, something can be revived in the U.S. psyche that is viable and can bring about a solution to the the twofold collapse, the controlled deton detonation of the Western banking system as well as the danger of nuclear war, which is increasingly doubling, doubling down on, being doubled down upon by certain uh, fanatics that perhaps might actually like to see the world uh, scorched instead of uh, right. subduing themselves to a higher moral ethos. Yeah. So this, yeah. the idea of what the Democratic Party used to be has been something that a lot of people have not studied or thought enough about, but people like Bobby Kennedy Sr., John F. Kennedy, Franklin Roosevelt were obviously... Uh, very strong, devoted anti-Malthusians who didn't believe in these absurd, misanthropic views of the nature of man and government uh, that are held by creatures at Davos, um, which presume... Okay, so you can just hear a few of the things I'm talking about, right? Like the setting up the, uh, the idea of impending nuclear war, uh, this idea, an idealized idea of, you know, the Democratic Party and the Camelot and uh, the Malthusianism, uh, but that that the Malthusianism is not coming here, right? Again, it's, it's you know, he's Canadian, uh, you know, I'm in Philadelphia, but I would say the Malthusian narrative and the eugenics genocidal narrative really does apply to the indigenous peoples of the Americas, right? And so uh, this idea that somehow, like, I think we, we have a lot to come to terms with in terms of our democracy and our uh, ideas of eugenics and optimization and extermination campaigns against certain people. But there is still this sort of in, in their, their his frame, this idealized governance model that they're they're going back to as a, a, opposed to the Davos model, as if the problem was strictly just in Davos. Assume that, you know, government is there to subdue the people and keep them complacent and happy little slaves under drugs and video games while uh, while a master class runs amok. There was another better idea that allowed the U.S. to thrive under the leadership of people like Bobby and John F. Kennedy. So, again, I think this is framed as a critique of RFK Jr., but the, it's a very um, light critique. And in many respects, it's sort of shoring up his identity as the Camelot candidate. That we're, we're seeing in certain sparks of potential emerge potentially with Bobby Kennedy, who was announced, Jr., who was announced his candidacy. 
And in your uh, your article, which again is harsh but hopeful, um, you you point out a, from his website on peace a very positive thing that I enjoyed reading as well, where you write where where he writes that Robert F. Kennedy will revive a lost thread of American foreign policy thinking, the one championed by his uncle John F. Kennedy, who over what his one thousand days in office had become a firm anti-imperialist. He wanted to revive Roosevelt's impulse to dissolve the British Empire rather than to take it over. That's rare to hear somebody say that. I'm impressed. Yeah. And then he goes on yeah. to say, our priority will be nothing less than to restore our moral leadership. We will lead by an example. When a warlike imperial nation disarms of its own accord, it sets a template for peace everywhere. It is not too late for us to voluntarily let go of empire and serve peace instead as a strong and healthy nation. Another good statement. Two good statements. I support those yeah. two. Those are great. And you started off by that hopeful quote that we can build on that. All right. So, yeah. So then they've got the the hopeful part. Um, yeah. So, again, not a really harsh critique there. The opening was like a little bit a uh, hat tip to Camelot and, uh, you know, can he be the anti-imperialist candidate? So, you know, I would say the one thing I want to point out is that you know, I, I've mentioned before that I've had a bit of a, a oops, sorry, run in, uh, email run in with Mary Holland and Michael Kane a bit ago. Uh, and this was in December of 2021. And so I was really concerned, at, as I have been for a long time after finding out about uh, Vantage Point Capital uh, and him, uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. being a, uh, a managing partner and also prior to being a partner, uh, a, an advisor in their clean tech industry space. And, and clearly selling a very strong salesperson for alternative energy systems. Um, but in this email exchange, Mary kept insisting that he wasn't. Um, now, again, I haven't seen any indication from LinkedIn, like his LinkedIn is very fragmentary. It, it doesn't really have anything on it. Like when he ended, like what the end date was for his time at Vantage Point, there's still a page. If you Google RF Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Vantage Point Capital Partners, it comes up and it has a 2023 date on it. Um, it doesn't have internal links, so you can't get to it other than Googling it, but it's still right there. Um, it hasn't gone away. Um, and so I don't know when he stepped away from vantage point, he hasn't really made that clear, uh, but he had a major role to play at the time. And his identity was very much around the alternative energy space. Um, and this was a major investor in emerging technology. So in this email to me, uh, and you know, and I was sort of pushing her on that and she, uh, this is her reply, uh, and this is a quote. His sole investment through Vantage Point was in a self-propelled surfboard, comma, sent into the ocean to check salinity. He previously headed Waterkeeper on environmental protection of water. This was part of his interest in protecting the oceans. Okay. So, all right. So, oh, he really didn't do much at Vantage Point. He only invested in a surfboard, right? An ocean surfboard to protect the ocean. Well, um, well, this is this is this surfboard. It's it was by some, uh, something called Liquid Robotics, and um, it was later bought out by Boeing, and it, it's being used for autonomous maritime solutions, right? Um, and this is from 2014, so this is a bit ago. Um, initially, the team will focus on uh, total integrated solutions for anti-submarine warfare maritime domain awareness and other maritime defense applications. 
Liquid Robotics is an ocean drone builder focused on providing fleets of networked, naturally powered robots carrying sensor payloads. Their wave glider ocean drones enable ocean observation, data collection, and monitoring. For more information, visit liquidr.com or boeing.com. Right? And it's, this is from the, 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 an article in Military Embedded Systems. So, you know, it's interesting how you spin a story. Oh, it's just a, it's just a ocean, you know, it's just a nice surfboard to, um, you know, to take care of the water, right? And, and this is the, the website of Liquid Robotics, now a Boeing company, connecting seabed to space. See how wave gliders provide the essential real-time communications gateway. Uh, make, we make the wave glider the most experienced ocean surface robot on the planet. It's not a surfboard, it's an ocean drone. And right there at the top, they have next to the environmental uses, the defense uses, but the, you know, defense, defense before the environment. And here's the article about Vantage Point leading the funding round. This is in June 2011. And I know, I believe uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. joined as a managing partner in 2009. So it says Vantage Point leads a $22 million round for liquid robotics. Um, a robot-based technology for measuring ocean data, uh, $22 million investment from Vantage Point Capital Partners, and Schlumberger, interesting, I missed that before, so the world's largest oil field firm, right? So how environmental is that, right? And um, the, the investment the company's first from venture capital will help Liquid Robotics expand its business of deploying unmanned floating devices to remote parts of the world to measure things right? Like oil spills for energy companies or fish populations for fisheries or for anti-submarine warfare or tracking, you know, people who are out on the ocean, right? There's all sorts of surveillance that is involved. And, and here's just the image of, you know, the venture partner. This is still out there. Um, some people are like, oh no, this is just a mistake. It's an old thing, but it does say 2023. So you would think if you were a presidential candidate, you, you'd either make it really clear what your relationship to them is, was, the dates, uh, ask them to remove the page um, uh, as opposed to just delink it. Uh, I don't know. But yeah, so this is the, uh, you know, and they have quite a substantial portfolio. Um, I, don't, I don't think I have the link to the portfolio here. But um, yeah, so uh, let me see if the, yeah, like if you if you go to his name, it actually, the portfolio links up. So it's still active. Like the links are active on, on, oh, there you go, there's the ocean drone. It's not a dead link. It's just not linked on the main, on the team page. It doesn't show him as a team on the team page. But uh, he's still there and all of his stuff is still linked in the in the portfolio. Um, you know, I, I've done this before, but I encourage people, I'll, I'll include the link to the map, you know, click through because a lot of this is emerging uh, technology, uh, telecommunications, biopharmaceuticals, uh, these are all exits, so you know who knows when RFK Jr. Uh, ended his relationship with them. Um, you know LED lighting. Oh, there's the liquid robotics right here. Yeah, so this is—he's <clears throat> not anti-business, <laughs> Matthew and uh, Fox. He's not anti-business. He's just for the business that works for his business interests. Um, okay, and then so I would say I—you know—I mentioned before about peace. This is my concern, the Carnegie Endowment for Peace, when I was making up this big map. Uh, you can see here, I was doing some mapping of this Mohonk house, uh, the Smiley Brothers who were Quaker, 
And this resort in, again, uh, upstate New York, not far from where Fox lives in Kingston, I think about half an hour away, uh, not far off the Hudson. And they were having these conferences in international arbitration in the late 19th century that ultimately led to The Hague. And so I think that that where the, where the direction things are going is that the uh, electronic democracy uh, and smart contract e-government, uh, cybernetic government will be an established as some sort of international legal system. And that really the, the Carnegie's, uh, Andrew Carnegie of US Steel, and it's interesting because, again, um, in that interview, they talk about steel. Like, how, how is Africa going to make their steel um, uh, facilities with solar? It's not going to work. Um, so, yeah, so it does go back to steel, uh, Carnegie, uh, in Pittsburgh. And among the things, so remember, he, he funded the Flexner Report to remake uh, medicine for the modern age. Uh, he was involved in the Institute for Science, and I think uh, Vannevar Bush was, was part of that. Uh, the, the Corporation for Education Reform, so remade all of the stuff around seat time learning and uh, funded TIA craft requirements for teachers. And he had this peace endowment. And he actually set up a whole palace, the Palace of Peace at The Hague. Um, and then later on at one of these uh, peace conferences, uh, his, his representative, Nicholas Murray from Columbia, attended. And it was... Uh, also attending our, uh, in uh, 1912 uh, was this guy, uh, Abdul Baha Baha'i, and he was the head of the Baha'i faith, the unity of all people out of Iran. And I think uh, Irvin Laszlo has said that he imagines the future uh, sort of unification of the world, maybe this one world religion, the Baha'i would be good candidates because they're very scientific, they have a logic and they're with their faith. And so he came to the 1912 meeting and then later on went on to create, uh, host a conference in conjunction with uh, Rudolf Coffey, who was a San Francisco rabbi and connected to the Human Betterment Foundation, which is eugenics, to create this Pathway to Universal Peace Conference in 1925. So again, as much as I don't want to be against peace, I'm a little concerned about how it fits in, again, with Sustainable Development Goal 16, peace, justice, and the law, uh, with these late 19th century conferences of the elite into international arbitration and the ties of that to uh, Carnegie. Uh, I think that's something that we need to pay attention to. And then um, the other thing is, is that when I was looking into the Japan Moonshot Project, uh, that the Carnegie Endowment for Peace, uh, this is in 2020, was hosting discussions about the Moonshot Program. And remember, the Japanese Moonshot Project was happening in conjunction with the U.S. Department of Energy. So that, again, that would be the nuclear stuff embedded into that. And uh, the National Science Foundation and Google and many of these other industries were involved in the Japan Moonshot Project, which has us living outside of a mind and body in time and space by 2050. Um, so the fact that the Carnegie Endowment for Peace is uh, bringing together uh, thought leaders around this Moonshot Project, I think we should be paying attention to, you know, including the, the participants, uh, Hiroki Katano, uh, the president and CEO of Sony uh, Computer Labs. And again, uh, he's, he's working closely with Peter Stone at the UT Austin on AI and robotics. So here is just uh, the working group. I encourage you to read this paper. It's from December of 2019, which is an interesting timing, right? And uh, it's the work, the first working group is expanding human potential towards a society in which everyone can pursue their dreams, which sounds super great. Uh, 
except that the, the first part of that goal is that by 2050, we will be free of limitations of a body, brain, space, and time by 2050. And, you know, I, I would just posit that um, this idea is maybe totally in line with what Oliver Reiser is talking about as a world brain, that we exist as digital avatars uh, in some sort of collective space. And um, if we don't understand that, <clears throat> if we want to situate the Great Reset exclusively in Davos, <clears throat> and we're not talking about the Japan Moonshot Project and the role of the Department of Energy in setting all of this up and the role of Carnegie in administering it and this long history of uh, homogenization through uh, high technology engineering, I think we're going to be missing the boat. Um, this is really important. And I think that the Vernadsky, Talhar Desjardins, Riser idea of uh, dematerialization into a global thought form as a, as a expected part of human evolution would be in alignment with this, right? So uh, this is stuff that we need to be talking more about. And so I just, I want to... You know, again, situating this in the context of uh, RFK Jr. as the anti-imperialist peace candidate who's going to strengthen America, um, we this is like all in the background. And I, I just threw this map up, the Mohonk Mountain House, which is where the Smiley Brothers had their gatherings to talk about international arbitration uh, with Carnegie and the Baha'i, uh, is about uh, 18 miles or a half an hour drive from Kingston. So... Uh, yeah, so Fox, if you're if you're listening to this, it might be worth looking into. I'm sure probably Mr. Buffett is aware of this history. <clears throat>